It's a blessing to be here. Thanks. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to Matthew 28. Um, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone uh, to start with the Great Commission. Um, part of my role is to help us together at AGC think about the Great Commission in a fresh way. I know that's quite a challenge because most of us who have been believers for some time or been involved in Christian school, homeschool, in church. We've, we've heard messages on the Great Commission, and I want to uh, throw you a, a curveball today and use Matthew 28 to show that um, the scriptures have a priority on church planting and missions. And it starts right here with Matthew 28. It's time to consider some of these practical implications for how we think about missions and the end goal of missions ministries. That's what I do in Propempo. I help churches be the senders, be the sending church. And in the process of doing that, God has blessed us to help churches raise up and train, uh, not exclusively within the church, but to be sent out from the church. And as a part of that, I have the joy of mentoring dozens of missionary units around the world in unreached people groups that we've helped to train that way. And uh, it's a real blessing for me. We, Kathy and I feel like um, short of going back to the field ourselves, the best thing we can do is multiply ourselves many more times by people who are, will be able to spend 20, 25, 30 years in hard fields sowing the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can almost guarantee you that some of you may be upset by some of the things I'm going to say here. Um, that's probably a good thing. You can disagree with me. That's okay. I'm not offended at all. Uh, just be good Bereans and see what the scripture says. And I trust that I'm going to give you a scriptural foundation for looking at this uh, topic this morning in equipping our, the priority of church planting and missions. I certainly want to stir your hearts toward a stronger commitment to your own local church. Just the fact that you're here during equipping hour is a good sign. So you guys, I know, are the core people. So you're the people who show up at equipping hour, you need to infect lots of other people to be the same way in terms of commitment to this local church. That's part of the theme of what I'm saying. So I want to propose this um, statement to you. The planting of indigenous local churches should be the priority and intentional end result of all missions ministries. We hold that the local church is the beginning and the end of missions. It's the seedbed and the fruit. It's the origination and the results. The local church is where it all happens. I'll show that from Scripture. And it's where it ends up. Indigenous local churches that themselves are healthy, biblical, reproducing local churches to reach their own people. So let's look at these words from Christ. I'm going to give you 12 reasons. These are from Christ in the Great Commission Verses 18 to 20, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now we're, gonna, we're not going to do a deep dive into the exposition of this passage. You've heard some, I'm sure, in the past. But I want you to take a look and see that Making disciples is the main verb. We talk about making disciples 
uh, including evangelism. So evangelism has to happen. The gospel has to be heard and received in order for there to be disciples. And then discipling them is disciple, making them disciples of Christ, having them grow in spiritual maturity over a long term of relationship, teaching, training, equipping, serving in ministry. That's making disciples. The, uh, the beginning participle, go, is linked to making disciples. So making disciples is a strong command and continuous. Go, it actually shares that going, shares that thought. It is linked up to that. Baptizing comes as a result of making disciples. People become identified with Christ. And normally we think of baptism as an ordinance of the church. We learn that later in the New Testament. That's exactly what it's designed to be. It takes place in the context of a church. So if you think of baptizing, you don't think of someone kind of going into the river or the bay and dunking themselves. You think of spiritual leaders um, kind of overseeing that process and attesting that these are believers. They have a valid testimony of salvation and it is done under the auspices of some level of spiritual leadership. And typically we think of that as local church. So you're beginning to get the idea, if you think about the elements of the Great Commission already, that local church seems to be on the horizon, at least that. The last um, verb participle is teaching them to observe all that I have command you. It implies a commitment and consistency to meet together for teaching. Teaching doesn't happen in one dump, you know. It's not like a movie where you get a, a line into your brain and you go, and the computer feeds you and you know everything that you need to know. It's not that at all. It doesn't happen that way. It happens over a period of time. It happens over meeting together regularly to study and attend to and apply God's word. That's the teaching them. Sounds like a local church to me. That teaching the Bible as the commands of Christ is really an expansion of the whole New Testament. Christ's apostles and those designated, inspired of the Holy Spirit, wrote the scriptures, collected the scriptures. So all of that is the teaching of Christ. It's not just the red letter words in your Bible. It's all of it. It's all of the Gospels all the way through to the revelation of John at the end. To observe all that I've commanded you re requires a level of obedience, like we understand and we do it. So here's an interesting thing. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian in the New Testament. It just isn't there. I strongly oppose friends of mine who say, oh yeah, I'm just part of the membership of the greater body of Christ, of the universal church, and my family can kind of just worship by ourselves in our home, or we can uh, just kind of spring around to different churches and kind of get the cream off the top, so to speak, and pick and choose what we want. No, 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 no. The Bible has, for example, over 40 commands that talk about ministering to one another. It's the one and others of the New Testament. You cannot accomplish that on your own. There is no way a person can claim to be a mature Christian believer apart from a mutual commitment to people obeying the one another commands, just as an example, besides all the other dynamic things that happen in the body of Christ. 
the sharing, the serving, the teaching, the, the ministering to one another in need, all of those things happen within the context of a group of people who are mutually committed together to meet regularly, to hear the teachings, and then to obey the teachings. So I maintain that the Great Commission by itself, if understood in its implications, means that we have to plant local churches in order for this to be obeyed. You follow that? That's the priority of the local church. And you say, David, you're just making inferences. I don't believe you. Just wait. There's more. If someone ministers in such a way so as to fulfill all these elements, you have the foundational definition of a local church. And that is, this is my words, putting it all together. It's a group of mutually committed believers, people who have been evangelized and discipled, having biblically qualified leaders and teachers, observing the ordinance of the church, meeting regularly for worship, fellowship, teaching, and edification, seeking to obey the commands of the New Testament. So this great commission itself, when examined carefully, demands that priority be given to planting indigenous local churches without which the great commission could not be obeyed or fulfilled. That is the reality. The reality of the great commission is that you have to end up with local churches or you're not doing the whole thing. So I would argue against ministries and ministry people who say, I'm evangelizing, therefore I'm doing the Great Commission. And I'll tell you, I I told this to the elders the other day, that the New Testament Greek word for that philosophy is baloney. You cannot fulfill the Great Commission simply by evangelizing. Evangelizing is part of it. But if you're going to fulfill the Great Commission, the whole shebang, you've got to do all of that stuff, and that requires you to end up with a local church. Second, the regulation. So follow along with me. Jesus' promise to build his church. I love uh, one of my elders, pastor friends says, Jesus only had one building program. That was the church. And we would interpret that to mean the local church. Local churches everywhere. Not just the universal church, although you could take it to be that. But his teaching regarding church discipline, for instance, or church restoration, if you will, in Matthew 18, is wired around the idea that there are people recognized as inside the church and leaders of the church and people that are outside the church. You can't do that in Jesus' teaching about the church without local churches doing that stuff. If someone, if there's a believer that's inside the church that is in unrepentant sin, you don't call a universal church council to deal with it. It's all localized. It's right in the church. The whole context of 1 Corinthians is set in a local church, and so there's, there's actually church discipline, there are corrective things all going on, 1 Corinthians as a whole assumes it's the local church is the body where all this dynamic stuff is taking place. Teaching, correction, rebuke, and so forth. Thirdly, the remonstration. Jesus' message to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 3 
speak to the significance and centrality of local churches in the perspective of Christ. This is 60 years after the giving of the Great Commission. Jesus shows up again to the Apostle John and says, I'm concerned about local churches. I know details about people in the local churches. I want the local churches to honor me and obey my word. That is amazing. Jesus is very consistent through all of that time, even from heaven, at looking at local churches as the local expression of his will in fulfillment, I submit, to the Great Commission all around the world, wherever they are. These happen to be in the province, mostly in the province of Asia, Roman province, which is now western Turkey. So he speaks to that, and he, the remonstration is the corrections he gives to each of these churches in order in Revelation 2 and 3. Then look at the churches themselves. We've seen some examples of teaching of Christ, and you see the recipients of the Great Commission. What happens there? Those who receive the Great Commission directly, the apostles and other friends that were part of Jesus' resurrection appearances in the in the Acts chapter 1 scene, what did they do? What did their contemporaries do? The people that heard the Great Commission, how did they understand the Great Commission? You know what they did? They planted local churches. Amazing. They fulfilled the mandate by planting and organizing indigenous churches. See the whole book of Acts. The book of Acts is about the expansion of the gospel through the planting of churches all around the Mediterranean. That's the record that we've been given by the Holy Spirit in the Bible that we hold in our hands right here. They understood that the fruit of obedience to the Great Commission, those that heard it, resulted in the establishment of of new local churches everywhere. So what are the results we see beyond that? I mean, we see it in the book of Acts, but guess what? What are the epistles? They're letters to local churches. What are the pastorals? They're letters to leaders of local churches, guys who are assigned to establish and strengthen local churches. All of that, we tend to just not see somehow. We're not seeing the obvious. So I'm reminded kind of humorously of the the story of Sherlock Holmes. I'm a Sherlock Holmes fan I used to read it over and over again, all those stories, and tried to equip my brain to solve life's mysteries. So Sherlock Holmes and uh, his friend, Dr. What's his name? Watson, right? They're camping, probably in Alaska. <laughs> They're out camping, and they've set up camp, and they've had their, their, uh, their fire supper, and, and it's, it's dark, and they're in their tent, sleeping. In the middle of the night, Watson elbows Holmes and wakes him up and says, Sherlock, Sherlock, look at the sky. It is amazing. It is fantastic. All of the stars up there, it's just overwhelming. What does it all mean? And Sherlock says, Watson, somebody stole our tent. (laughs) 
Sometimes, you know, we read the Bible faithfully as Christians and we just fail to see the obvious. Doesn't it seem obvious? All these letters were written to churches that have been established in obedience to the Great Commission and they're local churches. And we just miss the point that the names of the letters convey that there's a local church here and a local church there and a local church there and and the pastorals that these guys are set to establish and help local churches. Somehow that just kind of blows right over. And we get into the weeds, the nitty-gritty, good stuff, obedience, truth, you know, great things about God. That's true, but it was written to local churches. From the context of the churches, we see the relationships, that is the 40-plus one another commands of the New Testament, and they all refer to dynamic relationships of Christians within a local church context. It just doesn't happen, really, apart from the local church. You may have a really good Christian friend at work, and love them and, and have a sense of mutual care for each other and even encourage one another in the Lord. That's great. But where you really own it is on a local church basis where you see them week in, week out, growing, going through life's issues, and stepping up and understanding how to serve and obey Christ in a better way. And that happens through the one another commands in the relationships. Seventh is the report. The local church in Antioch is the scriptural setting through which the Holy Spirit worked to set apart the first New Testament missionaries. So clearly in the outlook of Paul and Barnabas, the local church is intended as the initiator and the means and the ends of gospel missions ministry. So I, I share this little nugget with uh, people who are candidates, people who say they want to go into missions. I feel like God may be calling to me in missions, and I say it's great borrowing from uh, Michael Griffiths, you can uh, tell people your willingness to go, but only the local church can affirm your fittedness to go. Um, we say it this way also, if, if you hear the call of God to missions, <clears throat> the people around you will hear it too. It's not a solo thing. We don't allow people to lay hands on themselves. And the primo example is Paul. When did Paul know that he was going to be set apart to be a missionary to the Gentiles and to speak to kings and rulers and authority of the gospel? It was actually by supernatural revelation when he was saved on the road to Jericho. He knew what was going on right then. I mean, Damascus, the road to Damascus, he knew what was going on right then. How long did it take from knowing that he was actually called by God to be a missionary to the time he went being sent out by the church in Antioch. 12 years, more or less, about 12 years time. So if you say you want to be a missionary, I say, great, be prepared for 12 years of preparation. What? 12 years? Well, maybe not 12, but it took Paul that long and amazing how humble he was. He knew for absolute certain by special revelation from God that he was going to be a missionary and yet, he humbly submitted to the training program God had for him, the experience and skill building and ministry, the understanding of the scriptures, and finally the appointment of the church leaders who finally got it. You know, yes, this guy should be going out as a missionary. Amazing. <clears throat> so if you're in that position, prepare yourself to be in submission to your church leaders for the duration of whatever it takes to equip you to go to the field for long-term effective ministry. And they reported back to the church. 
They kept coming back to the church and reporting what God had done and then being sent out again. So the request, we're going to turn to Romans 15. I will get a shade deeper here because there's several things you need to know. Romans 15. Many modern commentators uh, have now understood the precipitating factor that caused Paul to write to the church in Rome was this ask in chapter 15. It wasn't just a friendly letter to a church he'd never visited before. It was a friendly letter with, filled with doctrine and amazing things, fantastic logic and argumentation of the gospel and its implications and practical application in Christians' lives. But the point of it was this bit in Romans 15. Let's start at verse 18. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus to make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never heard, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So he goes on and explains some more narrative. And in, verse, in chapter 16, I love this from an Asian point of view, where I was kind of cut my teeth culturally. Um, what he does is he says, I expect to be helped on my way there by you. That happens to be the word propempo, by the way. I expect to be helped on my way there by you. So that means supplying what he needs, uh, missionary support, including material goods or whatever it takes to get there, whatever it takes to do the job there. So that's the propempo implication there, to be helped on my way there by you. That's the request. I expect to ask you, to come along, to convoy with me, to be partners with me, to join in support of this ministry to this unreached area. All the other areas have been reached, at least in principle, through their cities. From Jerusalem all the way around the Mediterranean, Turkey, Greece, up to Illyricum, which some of your Bibles, translations may say Dalmatia. That's not where the dogs come from. That's present-day Croatia. It's the Balkan area. And that's what he was saying is all the way across. And now Italy, what we call Italy today, centered on Rome as the hub, had been reached already. So he didn't need to really go there except as a jumping off point to go to Spain, this unreached people group. And that's what he's asking people to do. Chapter 16, he names them, many of them, 30 some of them. And it's as if to say, I'm asking you for help and I know where you live. I know things about you already that testify of your willingness to share in the gospel in this way. So a couple of little things I need you to understand here. What is he talking about, about unreached or going to new areas? It's where they have no access to the gospel. 
So I get arguments from people all the time who say, well, wait a minute, my neighbor's lost. Someone in my family's lost. My schoolmate's lost. People I work with are lost. Why should we give emphasis to unreached areas? Why should we do that? Let's like reach these people first, my people first, and then we'll go over there where they're really different than us, and we don't particularly care for them anyway. Well, the point is, the people that are around you, your classmates, people you work with, people that you share life with in your neighborhood, in your family, they're equally lost, true. Spiritually lost is spiritually lost, no matter where you are in the world. Whether it's in Central Africa or or the mountains of Asia, or the, the, the jungles of South Pacific, or uh, the villages of the bush. They're equally lost. True, that's true. But they're not unreached. You know why they're not unreached? Because they know you. They have access to the gospel through you. And in these United States, they have access to the gospel through a lot of other means as well. Christian radio, literature distribution, the Bible in our language, mostly. Um, you can find it at Walmart if you look for it. You know, it's just, it's pervasive around the U.S., the access to the gospel that we have. It's true that people are depraved and apart from God and running away from God and rebel, rebellious. They're lost. Their lives are a mess. They're heading for a cliff and don't know it for eternity. But we are responsible. AGC is responsible. The ministries of our people are responsible for our people. But those who have for generations and generations never heard the gospel, have not had access to the gospel by repression of their political or religious systems, by their culture, by their standards of identity, who they are. They have repulsed Christian workers and the gospel for hundreds of years. And they're lost. And they have no way to hear unless someone is sent. That's Romans 10. And it's our job to send them so that they don't remain unreached. The rough statistics are 2.7 billion people are statistically unreached without access to the gospel unless someone goes. 2.7 billion people and growing. And Paul says that area that I'm talking about is sort of the last unreached people group region counterclockwise around the Mediterranean that has not had access to the gospel. That's where I want to go. So Paul's request in Romans 15 and later in his um, epistle to the Philippians is to thank them, to encourage them in financial support of ongoing ministry to these unreached areas. Relationship with the local church as a partner in missions ministry was great joy and enablement for Paul and his team. And this request, which is repeated again in Philippians and some other um, places where it, it hints at that, for these churches to take part by financially and prayerfully being a partner 
with the ministry. Number nine is the resolution, the charges of the apostles. So apostolic authority from Christ, Paul charges his colleagues, Timothy and Titus, to organize local churches and appoint spiritually qualified leaders in them. His goal, apparently, was to see indigenous local churches as the fruit and of his work and their work. Now, I love the letter to Titus. Titus, I call the missionary to knuckleheads. And Jeff may feel like that in Anchorage. I don't know. But... um. Ministry to knuckleheads, people of Crete were known for being tough people. Um, and Paul calls them out right in, I mean, in Titus. Paul calls them out and says, even their own literature poets say this about them. They're, they're pretty unkind people to work with. But God wants a church planted here. God wants a church planted on this island and You're the guy to do it. You represent our team. You represent me. You represent Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let's see sound local churches built up, which cuts across the grain of culture. I mean, the the qualifications for eldership in Titus 1 cuts across the culture of their natural disposition, but it's the same universally around the world in every local church that have biblically qualified elders. It's a character thing. It's a capacity to teach God's word and rebuke those who refute it. It's that kind of man that's called to be a church leader. And Paul says this resolution to Timothy and Titus, stick with it, stay in place, work through the hard stuff, work through knuckleheaded people to see God's church planted where you are and established. Number 10 is the responsibility John speaks of it in 3 John. So if you turn there really briefly, 3 John. So the apostle is writing to a church leader named Gaius that he names um, in the first verse. And he's writing about Gaius's leadership and influence in his local church. So we're talking about a local church scene again. He's writing to a pastor. And he says here in verse 5, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. He's talking about missionaries who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. A couple little highlights. He, he says, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. That's the propempel word, send them on their journey. It means an involvement with, an ownership of, and a support of seeing this work done. He says, you're partners with the truth in seeing that happen. And so your church shares, if you will, in the fruit of that ministry as they go out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. It's important that the gospel be offered freely, Because it is a gospel of grace given by God. So we don't want, as was common in the Greek world, to have gospel teachers paid, if you will, by their hearers and recipients, and then it becomes a conflict of interest thing. How does that work? But when they have their way supported, then they can freely give the gospel and let God do his work in drawing people to Christ. 
It's really a wonderful dynamic. Um, it's one of those, another objection I get from missionary candidates is, I don't really want to raise support. And my short answer to them is, Jesus raised support. Look at Luke chapter 8. Jesus received support. If Jesus did it, we could do it too. And Third John chapter 6 and 7 and 8, uh, verse 6 and 7 and 8. Guess what? By the time of the end of the first century when this was written, in the very early 90s, this was an established pattern that workers, missionary workers, taking the gospel to places that hadn't been, were being supported by local churches like the one led by Gaius and encouraged by John. So it's not like a new thing that missionaries might have to raise support or expect to have support from churches. It's a normal thing. It's actually a New Testament kind of a thing. And it's okay. Is it hard? Yeah. Is it humbling? Yeah. Is it worth it? Yeah. Because Jesus is worth it. Is it great for a church to come alongside workers who are an extension of your local church to spread the gospel to places that you can't reach or in ways that you can't do? Absolutely. It's biblical. It's the way the church extends the church to other places. So the question is, what if a missionary is not directly involved in planting indigenous local churches? What do you do? There's, there's lots of other stuff going on here. An increasing number of missionaries and agencies, ministries, primarily address issues of social justice and relief and development and economic development. These ministries may include evangelism, but often lack focus of intentional church planting while caring for orphans or digging wells for clean water or stopping sex trafficking are good and biblical in their basis, I would argue that the core mandate of the church Great Commission is, to, is the disciple-making, and where authentic disciples emerge, churches start intentionally doing that. The goal is not disciple-making in itself, but disciple-making that ultimately leads to the founding of healthy churches that continue the process and extend it beyond the original founders. So what I'm saying today does have an impact on how you discern or discriminate between ministries that you're involved with or that you support. Are they consciously linking their thing, whatever that is, to the ultimate goal of establishing and strengthening local churches? And where they are, great, encourage it. Where they're not, you might want to take a step back and re-examine what's going on there. Today's parachurch organizations are extremely helpful in the missions enterprise. But when the church abandons its missions responsibilities and discernment, they kind of spin off and do their own thing organizationally. They become their own entity apart from the local church. So in church after church after church, one by one by one, generally speaking, I'm encouraging churches to, to rise up and take their biblical role that we've done a sweep of here, and we're going to get to more in the morning service preaching hour. Churches rise up and say, 
We're something that God has instituted, that God has created for his glory in a special way as a local church. So you look around the room and say, this is a pretty humble group. I mean, warts and all, we've got a lot of problems. We're not perfect. That's the point. God gets glory through imperfect people, through sinners, just like you and I. So that he gets the glory and not us. So as we think about how we extend the reach of this local church through missions, it's one of those discernment things. We learn and grow in discernment of saying, what's really on target? What is it that God wants to see done? What's truly in fulfillment of the Great Commission? And what is just supporting ministry stuff? Not that that's bad, if it's linked to that end result, that goal. So churches must bear the responsibility for discipling and affirming and preparing and sending out qualified missionary workers. I don't know if I'll have time this morning, but uh, I'll, I'll share just now some of the, some of the stats. Only, only about 15% of all the people who say that they feel called to missions actually make it to the field. A lot of things interfere. Good things, bad things, preventable, unpreventable things happen. And only about 15% of those who say, I feel called to be a missionary, actually go. Of those that go, particularly in the harder fields that I'm familiar with, the, the fields that I have the most affinity to and I work with workers and train them for the tough places, 75% of those who go don't stay beyond five years. So they've just got a handle on language and culture, if that, and and they leave, mostly for preventable reasons. That's that's pretty drastic. In fact, the comparison, just to kind of let your imagination run wild, it is multiple times more than the casualty rate of Omaha Beach in D-Day in Normandy in June 1944. We think of that as the most atrocity suffered by our military in all of military history of the U.S. It's a fraction of the casualties that take place on the mission field, people returning home. And often when they return home for preventable reasons, they're devastated It may take months and years for them to be rehabilitated to the place of functioning again as active Christians in the local church and even in leadership because they sold themselves out to let everybody in the world know, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to serve in a tough field. I'm going to go to a challenging place and serve there for long term. And then inside five years, they show up back home and go, well, you know, it didn't work out. That's hard. That's hard to live down. One of the keys to missionary effectiveness in any field, but particularly in the fields that we're familiar with, starting with our headhunting tribal group in the Philippines where we worked. I'm glad I still have mine. Indigenous reproducibility is the key to the mission's task. It happens to be a key to the American church's effectiveness in making disciples also. So not only what we do in ministry, but how we do ministry 
and how we train others and bring them along to reproduce that ministry is a significant qualifier for long-term effectiveness. It's reproducibility is key. People must see ministry as something that they can do. It's not just for the experts. It's not just for the seminary trained, although we love our seminary trained guys, and we love the idea of having a seminary available right here. It's fantastic. It's awesome. Don't get me wrong. But most of us are not going to do seminary. We're still expected to participate in ministry. The job of the leaders of the church, the pastor elders of the church, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And if your church is like our church, we're just about ready to send out a survey to everybody on the email list that says, where are you serving now? And where are you willing to serve? Doesn't mean you'll be selected necessarily. They're qualifiers for different kinds of ministry. But we need to know that from everybody in the church. This is your church. It's not... Jeff's church. It's your church. And you are the ones who do the work of the ministry on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year basis. So what if a missionary is not directly involved in planning indigenous churches? Well, you can point them in that direction. I mean, maybe they just never really studied enough to know. That's possible that they just need to learn a little bit and be open and teachable to What does the New Testament point them toward? And how can I shape my ministry, whether it's campus ministry or bush ministry or medical ministry or whatever kind of ministry, to aim toward that goal? What what changes can I make that would contribute toward that goal and see some revitalization of how they do that? The ultimate injustice is folks who have never had a chance to hear the gospel. There's a saying in the Arab world that the worst crime is to know where there's a source of water and not tell anyone in the desert. That's that's very significant. We should rightly be appalled by the deplorable circumstances and injustices that evidence a fallen world. We're gripped by catastrophic human needs, sometimes with life and death hanging in the balance But it's easy to believe that those presenting symptoms take precedence. And in some cases, maybe they must. I was privileged as a part of our FIRE fellowship. It's a fellowship of independent Reformed Evangelicals. That's FIRE. Fellowship, independent Reformed Evangelicals. Churches who gather together in fellowship to do missions together, but encourage one another. And uh, when the Haiti earthquake happened about nine years ago now, um, in January, I think it'll be, Um, they said, we don't want to give all our money to the Red Cross, for instance, because we know they have to take a huge amount for administration and marketing and all the stuff they do, and a a smaller amount goes to actually help the people on the ground. And that's true. They said, we want to do things so that all the money we give has direct impact on the people on the ground. And they asked me to lead that charge. So we did. And uh, we went, and it it was horrific. Uh, The devastation of the Haiti earthquake was enormous. There are varying studies of how many people died. I think University of Michigan's study was probably the most accurate, and something over 200,000 people died in the earthquake. 
And then after that, because of poor water conditions and poor living conditions, cholera swept around and killed more. Uh, there were lots and lots of people that were without shelter, proper shelter, um, even in the tropical Haitian climate. And uh, it, it was just horrific. We went, we passed out uh, water and rice and beans and um, canned goods and oil and stuff like that to, to help people just survive. But our intention very quickly was to do something lasting. And one of the decisions we made was we want to find communities around the center of Port-au-Prince um, that are willing to accept our biblical teaching to help them change the way they live to be more biblical and self-reliant instead of reliant on Western funds for generations. And we found six communities. We literally went to communities, helped them, and then asked the pastors who weren't necessarily of our doctrinal ilk to say, are you willing to do this? Let's explain the gospel here. Let's explain what we're expecting out of this. And we got six takers. As a result of that and repeated visits many times over, we kept going back to those communities to teach and to transform them. And today, by God's grace, we're seeing six communities and a new local church, actually, that's been started as a result of that with the pastors who are trained in biblical truth. They understand the gospel properly, and they're receiving continuing training in a little building that we adopted as a training center for pastors, and they're teaching their congregation to be more self-reliant. In fact, some of those congregations are giving money to missions where they never were able to before in whatever way they define missions, but it's definitely outreach. It's not their local church. And they're doing cottage industry kind of stuff to be able to, to plug in some more money, a few shekels at a time or whatever the Haiti money is. It's not shekels. But um, th- that so that they can, they can honor Christ. We're delighted that God enabled us to, to have that kind of focus. It's not just the human need part of the equation. It's the gospel saving and transforming part of the equation that is our emphasis. And as a result, over time, and the funds that came in through fire churches, we're seeing a lasting, continuing impact in their communities. And God allowed us to be in his instruments to touch and change those lives. That is really cool. Compare that to the stories of where people are who only accepted Red Cross tents and food. The difference is just night and day. We don't want to confuse means with ends. So it's okay to use a variety of means to the end of seeing healthy churches planted and established. We don't want to mix up strategies and results. Strategy is not the same as the results. Strategy is how you get there. What is the best strategy to get to the end result? And we want our church, our missions ministries, our missionaries to be thinking of that. We don't want the methodologies and strategies to eclipse the end goal. That's what we're really after. Sometimes uh, a trained, observed, uh, outside observer can help the missionary avoid that trap. I'm privileged to do that when I visit workers on the field in these tough fields. 
um, help them get another set of eyes on the issues and help them reset or recalibrate what they're doing so that they can be more effective in the long run. The Great Commission will naturally result in local churches. The baptizing and teaching and obeying of all things that I commanded you takes place in the context of a mutually committed and worshiping body of believers. That's clearly what the first century believers thought. It's clearly what the apostles thought. So doing this consistently, we trust that we will experience growth toward that end goal we see in Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 7, where people from every tongue and tribe and language, nation, all every ethnic division of humanity will be gathered around the throne and worshiping Christ, the Lamb who was slain for the world. That is going to be amazing. It is an awesome privilege to be a part of that even today. The greatest instrument of the gospel is the local church, according to God's design. In how we relate to one another and care for one another, love one another, even exhort and admonish one another, it is a demonstration of the gospel living in our midst that outsiders can see, and I trust that they're drawn to it. And when they see that we're not self-centered in all of our sort of goals as a church, They see that we have the world in view by God's grace and participate in it as he gives us opportunity. Jesus said, I will build my church. Paul wrote, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's my proposition again. The planting of indigenous local churches should be the intentional end result of all missions ministries. It's my prayer that God will enable you to have a fresh commitment to this local church. This is where you live. This is where you worship. Be a vibrant part of this local church and its ministries and encourage others of your churchmates, your AGC people that are not here right now, to do the same, to be involved. That doesn't mean you have to check off the attendance roster for everything that's possible. It means to be actively engaged in relationship with other people, whether it's through community groups, whether it's through serving, ministry, whether it is through extending ministry and gospel witness throughout your community, wherever you are, because you are the reason why those people are not technically unreached. And you have a responsibility to share the gospel as members of AGC in your community. So be freshly committed to that. Grow in discernment and understanding distinctions between various missions ministries. And then be committed yourself to the Great Commission. Strengthening this local church, encouraging the ministries of this church and the missionaries of this church to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity for us together to take a step back and take a fresh look at the sweep of the New Testament coming from the Great Commission with eyes to see as you have commanded us, that planting of local churches is a priority. It's the way that you have designed for your glory to be spread to the nations. We ask that you would help us to be excited about our role in doing that. 
for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.